Well, I'm excited this morning to uh, jump into the book of Hebrews again here in just a moment. But before we do that, uh, let me address a question that is probably on your mind today. And that is this, when are we going to be able to worship together back in person again? And uh, here's the short answer to that question is, we aren't sure yet. Uh, We are continuing to evaluate things very carefully look at every option, look at different plans for phasing back in. Uh, We are anxious to get back together. And at the same time, we want to be very wise in what we do. We want to make sure that we don't put anyone at risk at all. One thing that I can tell you for sure is that even when we begin a plan of phasing in things uh, to start being in person again, we will continue to stream our services so that anybody who's uncomfortable, anybody that is in a higher risk category can continue to worship with us online. But for the time being, those activities that would normally be happening in person in the building are going to continue on online. Uh, We are collaborating with other churches. We're looking at different options, just uh, all kinds of things happening. So one of the things that I would ask of you Uh, is that you would pray for us. Even details like, you know, we have a conversation with a professional company that would come in and disinfect in between services. All those kinds of things have to be worked out. But I would pray, uh, ask you to pray that God gives us wisdom in this and uh, that that we are able, you know, as soon as as, is safe to get back together, but at the same time uh, that we have a wise timetable in doing that. One thing I can tell you is that I miss seeing you. And our staff misses seeing you. And so we will be back together soon. Whatever soon looks like, uh, we will be able to be back together and we'll be past this season. Um, But let's jump in this morning to our study in the book of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 3 today. And I want to begin by reading the first six verses. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. You know, this chapter begins kind of in the same place that we see this theme over and over again in the book of Hebrews, even though we're just in the the third chapter of the book, that Jesus is superior to anyone and anything else. And we see that again. It it jumps in in these first few verses and begins to talk about um, who Christ is and how amazing he is. And so here's the first thought for us or the first main idea for us today is that we need to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's the way it's translated in the NIV that I just, just read from. Any of you ever get fixated on something and you can't get off of it? Uh, something ever get on your mind and it's just, I mean, it is there and they're as hard as you try to get it off your mind. It just didn't happen. I struggle with that sometimes. If I'm on something, I tend to be on that thing and, and just very fixated on it. Um, that's not always a good thing. But when it comes to fixing our thoughts on Jesus, that's a very good thing. 
If we can find a way to get consumed by who he is and to fix our thoughts on him, then, then that's, that's a really good thing. That word is actually, that verb that is translated here as fix your thoughts on, more literally is the, the word consider. Consider Jesus. It's the same word, the same Greek word that Jesus used when he was telling us to consider the birds of the air and the flowers of the field when he was talking about not worrying. If you remember that passage, he says, basically he's making this point. God takes care of the birds and God makes the flowers grow. What makes you think you need to have anything to worry about? But his, his word that he uses was to consider, meaning to pay careful attention to. Not just give a passing thought to, but to really consider, to really think about these things. And so we need to consider Jesus. We need to take note of this. We need to fix our thoughts on it. We need to dwell on it and, and it be something that is on the forefront of our minds often. Now, as we go through and, and, and look at uh, the book of Hebrews, once again, we see it talks about uh, fixing our thoughts on Jesus. It says, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. There again, there's some repetition there. And that's one of the things that you're going to see a lot in the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of repetition, but I don't think that's an accident. I believe the author does that because the things that he's repeating are really important. So when you see that same theme being repeated several times in this book, it ought to caught, catch our attention and make us realize, I better pay attention to this. But it talks again about Jesus being our apostle and our high priest. And it starts, verse 1 of chapter 3, starts with the word therefore, and it's making this connection between the fact that Jesus is our high priest and our apostle, and therefore, because of what was said in chapter 2 about who he is, then in chapter 3 it says that we should consider him or fix our thoughts on him. The difference in Jesus as our high priest, as we touched on a little bit last week, is that Jesus didn't just enter into the Holy of Holies one time a year to offer a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, on behalf of the people. But Jesus became our once-for-all sacrifice. And later in the book of Hebrews, you see that theme explored in a lot more detail. But Jesus is our high priest in that he offered himself as the unblemished Lamb of God. He sacrificed himself on our behalf. But then it also talks about how he is our apostle. The apostle, those were the spiritual leaders. They were the ones that people looked to for direction. And it's amazing to think that Jesus is both high priest, the one who sacrifices for us and made his own sacrifice on our behalf, but he's also continues to lead us. He continues to be our spiritual leader and, and the one that, that we follow. And so because of that, it says in verse three that Jesus was found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Now, we read something like that with the context that we have of the New Testament and 2,000 years difference uh, between the time of Christ and the time that we live, it's probably not a shocking statement for us to read that Jesus had greater honor than Moses. But I want you to put yourself in the position of a first century Jew and just try to consider what this sounded like to them at that time. Because the Jewish people, by the time Jesus came, they already had 2,000 years of history. They looked to Moses as the primary leader. Moses was the one who delivered the law to the people. Now, obviously, God is the author of the law, but Moses was the deliverer of the law. Moses was the one that delivered the people out of bondage in Egypt. 
And, and he was the one that was lifted up, that was the most revered person in all of Judaism. And now you're going to say to these Jewish people that have all this history and Moses is their top figure, can you imagine what it would sound like to them to hear the statement that Jesus is worthy of greater honor than Moses? Maybe for us that's not shocking, but I'm going to tell you that is a shocking statement for a follower of Judaism. And that's what the book of Hebrews was written to. These were Jewish believers, but they're believers that had a Jewish background. And so he's making it clear that Jesus is the one who is worthy of more honor. And the reason for that, verse 4, it says it's because the, the one who builds the house is worthy of greater honor than the house itself. And the association that he makes there is that Jesus is the builder of the house. But then you get into the end of verse four, look at what it says. It says, but God is the builder of everything. One more place, and we see this many, many times as well, where Jesus is associated with being God. But Jesus is the builder of the house. In fact, you could even say that Jesus is the one who built Moses. Because we saw that in just the second verse in this book, the book of Hebrews chapter 1, you get two verses in and it's already talking about how Jesus was the creator of everything. And we see that elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Jesus created Moses. Jesus created the earth on which Moses lived. Jesus created the air that Moses breathed. He created the sun that gave Moses warmth. He created the water that that met the needs of his body, the plants, the animals that fed him and nourished him, everything that Moses experienced and who he was, all of that was created by Jesus. And so you can see now why he says Jesus is worthy of greater honor, just as the builder of the house is worthy of greater honor uh, than the house itself. So verse 5 tells us a little bit about Moses, and it says Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house. I want to camp out there for just a moment and talk about that. The fact that Moses is described and Moses is honored and lifted up. This is not denigrating Moses in any way. He is described as a faithful servant in God's house. Now that's interesting when you look at the history and some of the things that Moses did because although Moses was a wonderful leader, he, he was not a perfect man. In fact, one of the issues that he seems to have struggled with, he seemed to have had anger problems. Moses, when he came across a, uh, an Egyptian who was mistreating one of his fellow Hebrews, he got so angry that he murdered the guy. Uh, when he took the Ten Commandments from God, he was up on the mountain with God, and he came down, and they had created this golden calf. They were worshiping this golden calf. Moses saw that, and he became so angry that he threw the tablets down. The tablets that had been inscribed by the finger of God and broke the, the tablets, the original tablets of the Ten Commandments. Both of those legitimate reasons to be angry, but Moses does appear to have had, tro to, uh, to have had trouble controlling his anger. We see the same thing uh, when he's leading the people out and they've, they've crossed over the Red Sea and the people begin to grumble to God and they don't have anything to drink. And God gets ready to perform a miracle but Moses is upset with the people and this is what he said. God said, speak to the rock and water will come out of it. But Moses got mad and he hit the rock. He struck it with his staff. He said, must we bring water out of this rock? And as a result of his disobedience, he wasn't allowed into the promised land. So all that to say is this, Moses was not a perfect man. 
And I hope that's encouraging to you to hear him described as a faithful servant in all of God's house in spite of some of the mistakes that he made. Here's what that says to you and what it says to me. Our mistakes do not qualify us, excuse me, our mistakes do not disqualify us from being a faithful servant in God's house. I believe there's somebody that needs to hear that this morning. You need to be reminded that your past and the mistakes that you've, that you've made do not disqualify you from being a faithful servant in God's house. Moses was that faithful servant, but Jesus was different. Jesus was superior because he was the son of God. It says that Moses was a servant in the house, but, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. See, there's a difference between a servant and a son, right? Jesus is the, the only begotten son of God, the, the second person of the Trinity who always has been God, always will be God. That's who Jesus is. Back in October of last year, Sean and I had the opportunity to go to Southern Michigan for a little retreat. It was put on by Life Action Ministries. We'd had them here in the church uh, the previous year, and they did a fantastic job, and we're actually looking at having them come back again and do some things with us here in the future. But we went to a little retreat there, and uh, we were about 20 minutes from Notre Dame. I'd never been really anywhere close to that area before, and I thought, well, this will be cool to go and do a little tour of the university. So we did, and we toured around Notre Dame for a little while and got to see some really cool stuff and learned all kinds of fascinating information that I didn't know uh, but being a, a sports guy, one of the highlights of that tour for me was getting to see the outside. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see the inside of their football stadium. In fact, I have a picture we're going to put up for you here that, that actually I took while we were there. So you can see the outside of that stadium. Um, but next to that stadium, that stadium is referred to as the house that Rockney built. If you know something about Newt Rockney, he was the coach uh, in the early 1900s and just turned the program around. Uh, in fact, we have a second picture of a statue of him that we'll put up there for you, and it has his, his record, one loss record, and all that stuff on there. It's pretty amazing the things he was able to do to take this small school and turn it into a national contender. And what happened was, because he had built such a great team, the university said, we need a stadium that is fitting for such a quality team. And so they built this Stadium at Notre Dame, and it's referred to as the house that Rockney built. I love that story. But let me tell you a story I love even more. It's a story about the house that Jesus built. See, we see in verse 6, it says, We are his house. We, meaning followers of Christ, those of us that belong to Jesus, we're his house. We are part of the story that, uh, of the house that Jesus built. And, and it wasn't just that it inspired someone else to do it, as in the case of the house that Rodney built. Someone else was inspired to build it. No, Jesus built it himself. He is building us into his house. But then it gives a, a qualifier at the end of verse 6. It's important for us to see. It says, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. Now, once again, this is a theme that we will see many, many times in the book of Hebrews, and we'll come back to it uh, in, in the weeks to come. It's this theme of the importance of our faith lasting throughout the entirety of, of our lifetime. It says that one of the ways that we know that we belong to the house that Jesus is building is that our faith continues on until the end. Now, here's, let me just share a little, we'll come back to it in a lot more detail 
uh, in, at other weeks when, when we can dive into it a lot further. But let me just give you a little phrase, something I'd heard, I don't know, 25 years ago or so, and it's stuck with me ever since. But when it comes to, to understanding and grappling with that question of, you know, what does it mean for an individual that falls away from their faith in God? Here's the, the, the little phrase that I like. Faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. I mean, think about that for a minute. Faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. There, there was something wrong on the front end if it doesn't last. If it's a house that Jesus is building, then it will continue on. We'll, we'll get a chance to dive into that further in the weeks to come. But for now, we're fixing our thoughts on Jesus. We're considering Jesus. But then let's continue reading. Verse 7 through 12. It says, So as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice... Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Here's the second thing. Simply, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. That's the warning that we get here in these verses. And verses 7 through 11 are a quote from Psalm 95, interestingly enough, verses 7 through 11. But he's quoting an Old Testament psalm to apply to his readers at this time. Now, we need to remember something really important. And that is that when God speaks to us, we have a choice in how we respond. We can either harden our hearts, we can reject what God is saying to us, or we can listen to what God wants to say to us. Now, I'm going to come over here and have a little fun for just a minute with an illustration, and I'm, I'm going to plug in my power here. Those of you that are really getting worried right now about seeing a hairdryer and a bowl of water, I just want to see what happens if you... Oh, I'm not really going to do that, but I, I am going to keep that over there. I'll tell you what I'm going to do in a minute. But the first thing I'm going to do is play hide and seek for just a minute and plug this in. All right. So I'm going to get this going here underneath, assuming that I can find where the plug is somewhere. There we go. So we are plugging in. And then we're coming back up. All right. So we got our hair dryer. We're ready to go. Make sure it's turned on and ready to go here so that we can do what we need to do. All right, we got power. We have here with us a couple of sponges today. And these sponges are a picture of who we are. This, the sponge represents you, it represents me. And you can tell the sponges that I have right now, you know, they're, they're a little bit soft, a little bit moldable, but they're not, not really soaking much up. Now, here's what happens when we hear the Word of God. We're like this sponge, and we either get hardened by the things that are around us, or we're softened by it. Now, I'm going to let this hairdryer be our representative here to illustrate what it's like, because there's a lot of stuff out there that will dry us out. There's a lot of stuff that will take the good stuff that God wants to pour into us, and it just takes it all away. And what happens over time is you get enough of that going and all the good stuff that God wants to put into us it just kind of gets dried out. 
and it becomes a lot less flexible now. It's a lot harder, a lot more trusty than it was before. This is one option in what can happen when we harden our hearts and we don't listen to what God wants to say. The other option is represented by the other sponge. And over here, some water. So I'm just going to put the sponge on the water for a minute and let it sit there and it begins to soak it up just a little bit, which is good. You know, get a little bit. Here's, here's what's even better. If we submerge ourselves in the water, in listening to God, then we become extremely pliable. Then we are very useful because an old dried out sponge really isn't worth much of anything. There's not much use to it at all. The question is, which of these two ways are you going to respond? Are you going to allow the world and all the mess that's out there to just dry you out so that you become dry and crusty? Or are you going to be like the one that soaks in what God has to say? Do not, the scripture says, harden your hearts. When God speaks to us, we need to make a point not to harden our hearts. Now, I find that interesting that he says that because a lot of times when you see that phrase, harden one's heart, it's talking about what God does to a person's heart. For example, Pharaoh in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that God hardened his heart. In Romans chapter 9, verse 18, it says, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Much of the time... When we're talking about God hardening a heart, we're talking about something that he does. But what this verse reminds us is that we also have the opportunity to respond either in faith, in obedience with a soft heart, or we can have a hard heart and reject what God says to us. The example that he's giving here is the people wandering in the wilderness. They are wandering in the wilderness because they had rejected God. What was the problem? Verse 12. Here's the problem and what we're warned against is that we not have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See, that, th those two words there, sinful, unbelieving heart. The word unbelieving is really just another way of describing what a sinful heart is. That's at the core of our sinfulness. It's lack of belief. I mean, think about it. pretty much any sin you can come up with. At the core of that sin is unbelief. It's not trusting God. It's not being willing to surrender to God's ways. It's wanting to do things my way and do what I want. That's at the core of all of it. In the Israelites' case, they didn't believe that God was capable of delivering them in this promised land because there were giants in the land and they were afraid. And when they sent the scouts out and they saw what the people were like and they came back and all the people said, there's no way we're going there. And God says, okay, then what you can do is wander around for 40 years until you all die off, and then your ancestors can go. And those, Joshua and Caleb, were the two of the spies that did believe that they could do it, and they were allowed to go into the promised land. But it was unbelief was what was at the core of it. And the thing that strikes me is that it makes it really clear here that it says that they had seen these things. Verse 9, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. These are people who had firsthand experience watching God work and watching God do the miraculous. 
and yet they still had a sinful, unbelieving heart. These are the people that saw God uh, part the Red Sea, lead them out of Egypt. Once they are in the desert, they saw God do miraculous things. He fed them when there was no food by creating manna and causing it to just appear on the floor of the desert. He, they had nothing to drink. And so God turned a rock into a water fountain. They didn't have meat to eat. And so he brings all this quail in and more meat than they could possibly eat. And yet listen to what it says right after all this is happening. Numbers 11, verse 33. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Before they could even finish the miracle that God had provided, their hearts had already begun to turn, begun to turn away in unbelief. That's the issue. Guys, listen to me on this. God's issue is the heart. That's what he is most concerned about. Now, I know we get caught up in outward behavior and, and behaviors are important. The reason they're important is because they reflect the condition of the heart. If we want to change our outward behaviors, if we want to change our sinful patterns, we don't just do behavior modification. We need to have a heart change. And the good news is that when we come to Christ in faith and we surrender our lives to Him and we come to a point of trusting in Him, then we get a new heart. That God changes our hearts. See, that's not something we're capable of doing. Our hearts are stained beyond repair. They are tainted beyond repair. But God can change our hearts. God can give us a new heart. And He wants to do that for you even today. There's never been a time in your life where you've come to a point of saying, I need you. I need you to change my heart. I want to put my trust in Jesus and stop trying to do things my own way. I want to turn away from my sin and put my faith in you. Then I want to encourage you to do that today. And we'll come back to that and give you another opportunity here in just a little while. But you may just want to pause right where you are and say, I want to give my life to you. I want to trust in you today. That's what we need is heart change. The issue is that we can have a sinful and unbelieving heart. And then the result of that in verse 11, it says, So I declared an, on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. They never entered into that promised land. They never entered into the rest that God wanted to give them. Now, in our case, the application may not be actually entering into a physical territory, but the application is still the same, that unless we come to a point of, of truly having a believing heart, you, we're never going to find rest. If you're trying to find peace in your life and you find that you're just continually restless, that's not going to change apart from Christ. But if you'll come to Christ, if you'll trust in Him, then He can give us the peace and the rest that we're looking for. Now here's one more thing I want to touch on as we prepare to wrap up here in verse 13. Verse 13 says, But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So here's the third thing. We need to encourage each other. We really need to encourage each other. We said a moment ago that we need to be in God's Word. We need to allow you know, Him to, to, to soak into us. But another thing that God has given us, He's given us each other. We need those relationships. And did you notice that it says in verse 13, to encourage each other daily. And then it says, as long as it's called today. So every single day, we need to be feeding off of one another. We need to be encouraging one another. I think that's a message we need to be reminded of, especially right now. 
during a time of social distancing, it's easy for us to get isolated. It's easy for us to retreat into our little cocoon and shut other people out. And yes, we need to be staying at home and doing those kinds of things, but we can still have relationships with other people. We can still stay connected through other means, even if we're not face-to-face with other people. And I can't emphasize that enough, how important that is. Stay connected. That's why we're always talking about the importance, even now, of being involved in connect groups, being involved in biblical community so that we can walk through life together. It makes a huge difference, and it's a huge way for us to make sure that, that we are not uh, having this hardened heart that we've been warned against. The good news is that when we follow God's plan, it allows us to experience all of what God wants to give us. But we have to be careful because it says that we can be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Here's my last little thought for you. It's not a main idea today, but just a thought is this, that sin is deceitful. See, how many times are we deceived by something thinking, hey, this is going to meet my needs. This is going to give me what I think I really want. And so the deceitfulness of sin, it promises something that it can't deliver. And we get sucked into these lies, believing that if I go this route or if I do this or if I fulfill this desire that I have, then everything in my life is going to be better. And we find out it doesn't make things better. In fact, it makes things far worse. It's the oldest trick in the book. Literally the oldest trick in the book was when Satan came to Adam and Eve and he says, oh, you probably, you, you want to have your eyes open, right? You want to understand the difference between good and evil. God's keeping that from you and he entices them to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what sin does. It tries to deceive us into believing that something will make things better, will fulfill a need when in fact it really won't. You see, the bottom line is this. We have to believe, and we should believe, that God wants the best for us. The question is, where does our heart stand? Are you more like this sponge? that's soft, receptive, ready to receive what's put into it? Or are you more like this one that's just kind of dried out and become hardened by sin? You know what the good news is? Even if we become hardened, it sure doesn't take very long when we begin to soak in what God has for us, that God can change us back into what He wants us to be. He wants to do that for you today. Let's pray. Father, we do ask today that You would help us to not have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from You, but Lord, a a receptive heart. Lord, that we are ready to receive what You want to give to us. Lord, we know that You want the best for us. And so help us to trust you in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.